0: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I am your host for today's interview. And I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Kevin Waite. Dr. Waite is an assistant professor of history at Durham University in the UK, and he is the author of West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of A Transcontinental Empire, which came out earlier this year in 2021 with the University of North Carolina Press and with the Clements Center for Southwest Studies as part of that institution's David J. Weber series in New Borderlands History. Welcome to the New Books Network, Kevin. Very uh, happy to have you here.
1: Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here.
0: Um, Let's begin as we traditionally do on the New Books Network by just hearing a little bit about you, uh, you the author. So what's your background? How did you become interested in history? How did you become a historian?
1: Sure. So uh, I was born and raised in Southern California, uh, where I learned almost nothing about the history that's in this book. Um, And and I had excellent teachers, so this is not at all a knock on them. Uh, It's just that the history of slavery in California and the American West wasn't really a subject that anyone taught or or that anyone talked about. Um, That said, uh, I'd really always been a Civil War buff as a kid. Uh, My dad and I spent uh, uh, multiple vacations touring battlefields in the East. So in a lot of ways, that was my entry point into the study of this era. Um, But it was really when I moved to Pennsylvania uh, to do my PhD at Penn with Steve Hahn. Um, that I got seriously interested in the history of antebellum California um, and uh, more specifically about the power of slaveholders in the region
0: yeah you mentioned that uh that this was not a topic that that you learned much about in in high school and uh we were chatting a little bit before the interview and i I was saying that this was something that i myself don't even know that much about and i study history for a living that this is really an understudied topic and it was it was a real pleasure to be able to to read about it in in depth like this and maybe that kind of answers my next question a little bit but i'm curious why this book how did this particular text come about
1: Hmm. Well, thanks for that, Steve. Uh, yeah. So the, the book really started with my desire to integrate the history of the South and West. Um, and I had this inkling, I think, as, a, as basically a first year PhD student, that the Antebellum West was a good deal more Southern than I was ever taught to believe. So I started looking for Southerners in places like California and New Mexico and Arizona and Utah Um, And really, once I started looking, I I started seeing them everywhere. Um, They were senators and they were judges and lawyers and military commanders and obviously gold prospectors. Um, So the the book is really an attempt to explain their presence uh, and their power within the region.
0: And then before we get into the book, I did have one other kind of uh, uh, meta kind of top down question, which is, uh, I'm curious, you know, as an American historian teaching in the United Kingdom about slavery and about the American West and about the Civil War, what's your experience been teaching American history to uh, what are, you know, I'm sure often British students? Do they view the American past differently? Do they have unique perspectives on these topics and these events? What's been your experience?
1: So my experience has been really, really positive on the whole. Um, When I first took this job to teach uh, US history at Durham University in the UK, um, I thought I'd have to do a whole lot of remedial work basically to get them up to speed on US history. Um, But then I I pretty quickly discovered that wasn't necessary at all. Um, And (laughs) I don't don't mean to brag here, but Durham students are just, they're they're really smart and they're knowledgeable and they're plugged in. generally speaking, they make my job pretty easy. Um, you know, Bonus points to any students if you're listening to this interview. Um, I also think I'm the beneficiary in a weird way of the, of the complete shambles of the American political system. Uh, I think a lot of my students enroll in my classes in American slavery and the Civil War Basically, because they think or they hope that I can tell them something about how we got to this moment, um, how the U.S. elected Donald Trump as president. Um, and, and I don't think uh, I probably uh, have any real answers for them. Uh, but if they believe that the, that the past can help sort of explain and illuminate the presence and, uh, and the, the present, um, and I really think it can. Uh, then I'm really happy to teach them. So I I think that's what's driving a lot of them into the classroom, and they're they're remarkably knowledgeable about American politics.
0: That's good to hear. I mean, as you kind of indicated, that part of that might be the ubiquity of of you know the United States in in the world, including in the United Kingdom. So let's start at the beginning of of the book, in the beginning of the story that you tell in the book. So for how long? Have white American slaveholders been eyeing the place that we call the American West? When and why did the West become an object of their desire?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I I basically opened the book with Thomas Jefferson and his reveries about establishing an American port on the Pacific Coast. But... Um, the real action didn't start until the 1840s, when um, California and New Mexico really become the target of American imperialism. Um, prior to that, uh, you could argue that the that, that sort of American thinking about the West wasn't embroiled in sectional politics. Um, that Southerners and Northerners could come together in common cause in projects to, for instance, sort of extend American control over Hawaii, um, or even to establish trade relations with China. Um, but then, in the mid 1840s, uh, the whole game in the West and in I'm, I'm sort of including the Pacific world in the West here gets sectionalized. It gets sectionalized. Um, it gets sectionalized first even before the outbreak of the US-Mexico War with the debate over a transcontinental railroad and where this railroad should run. Um, That debate really gets going in 1845. Um, And so increasingly through the mid-1840s, right up to the eve of the Civil War, um, the West becomes uh, an object of desire for both Southerners and Northerners, for anti-slavery politicians and pro-slavery politicians, and it becomes an object of desire for, for very different reasons, because they think that they can build this region in their image, and they think that they could either extend free labor across the region or slave labor across the region. Um, and so the the book is, in, in a lot of ways, really a, an attempt to track how slaveholders, more so than uh, anti-slavery advocates, were successful in sort of imprinting the, the far southwest with, with their, um, or, or building it in their image.
0: And the late 1840s, as you kind of indicated, they're really a pivotal decade here. And it's in the late 1840s that, as you say in the book, some slave owners, they begin to view, or not begin, but they continue to, or maybe they, with a newfound focus, view the future of slavery in the West as, and I'm quoting someone in the book here, as very bright, uh, particularly with the development, or in some cases, the near development of various transportation links and transportation networks that run between the Southwest and the Southeast. Can you tell tell? Tell us about, for instance, the the Great Slavery Road or the Lesser Slavery Road, some of these transportation networks and why they matter for the story.
1: Sure. So the Great Slavery Road was the campaign led by white Southerners to construct a transcontinental railroad across the slave states and into Southern California. Um, it, It was actually a pejorative term that abolitionists coined. Um, in the in the early 1850s, and then some slaveholders basically co-opted that term, and they sort of gave it this triumphalist overtone with a capital G and a capital S and a capital R. Um, and so the the first few chapters of the book attempt to explain how white Southerners on uh, on multiple occasions came really close to building this railroad. As we all know, the Transcontinental Railroad didn't get built until after the Civil War. Um, but even though these Southerners failed in the Antebellum period, uh, they, they helped shape the debate about the development of the Far West and, and like I said, basically whose image it should be built in. Um, and actually, Southerners succeeded in getting the next closest thing to their great slavery road, um, which is what I call the lesser slavery road in this book, um, which was known at the time as the Butterfield Overland Mail Road, which was a, a major wagon road that followed basically the same deep southern path that slaveholders wanted for their railroad and a lot of people thought that this uh, overland mail road was going to be the the precursor to a railroad. Um, So uh, this overland mail road doesn't really make the cut in most history textbooks um, because, well, you know, infrastructure isn't exactly the sexiest topic, um, but it was regarded as this huge pro-slavery coup at the time. Um, And so basically what I'm arguing in the first chapters of the book um, is that the sectional crisis was, to to really a surprising degree, a conflict over transcontinental infrastructure um, and how that infrastructure might propel slavery across the country. Um, And as I said, it it was a debate that Southerners more often won than lost.
0: And one of the things that the book does really well is well a couple things that it does well is that it it really it does a good job of showing how the things that we as historians say matters about the past and about, say, the, the 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 debate over the institution of slavery in the Southwest that often, I mean, those things matter, but that people on the ground at the time, they had different priorities and they saw other things as being of, of crucial importance and that it does us well as historians when we, you know, Go back to the primary sources and see what people were debating at the time. I mean, as you said, these 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 roadways and these infrastructure projects—they're they're not a sexy topic. They're not something that are usually included in the list of things that that brought about disunion. But at the time, they were a huge deal, and people were debating them a lot. And, and the book does a good job of highlighting those.
1: Oh, thanks, Steve. Um, that's a good way to put it. I think you know, all too often as historians, we 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 have a tendency to read our present moment backward um, and to understand the. The the past sort of in our own frame, um, and sometimes that means that we don't give we don't give enough attention to the to the issues that were vitally important to Americans at the time because they they they've fallen out of the narrative. Um, I call the um, this debate over the Great Slavery Road a monumental non-event um, because you know it, it didn't get built. The way that Southerners wanted it to be built, and it didn't get built at all in the Antebellum period. Um, but that doesn't mean that it didn't sort of fundamentally shape American politics and and, and the way Americans understood and, and and thought about and debated the future of the West. Yeah,
0: it's it's a a real testament to the idea of contingency, isn't it? That that you know the. the People debating the Great Slavery Road in, I'm just going to throw a year out there, 1849, they don't know that it's not going to get built necessarily. The fact that it's being debated, the fact that people see it as a viable uh, option, that is really what matters. That is the, the kind of thing that's shaping events is how I see it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: You also make a very strong case uh, in the book for the southernization, I believe is the term that you use, of California, which I found fascinating. Uh, uh, how did southern elites get their hooks into what is nominally talked about as a free state? California is often discussed in the kind of the the typical road to disunion narrative as this kind of tipping point toward the Civil War because it was a free state. And you kind of point to the opposite and say, well, it's actually more complicated than that, that that that. Well, I'll let you talk, but, but this is an interesting story.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Steve. And and that's a good way to put it, how Southerners got their hooks into California. Um, and I mean, in a lot of ways, they did it the same way that people go bankrupt, uh, gradually then all at once. Um, so slaveholders first started moving into California during the gold rush uh, when they brought uh, somewhere between 500 to 1,500 enslaved African-Americans with them. Um, and even though California technically outlawed slavery, as you say, in 1850, um, that didn't really put a stop to the history of slavery and pro-slavery intrigue in the state, as as a lot of historians have often assumed. Really, the the battle over slavery in California really just gets started uh, at the moment that it it technically becomes a free state. Um, And so in a lot of ways, this anti-slavery state constitution just galvanizes slaveholders, Um, and convinces them that they need to secure control over California in other really more subtle ways. Um, And one of the ways that they did this was by exercising a virtual monopoly on the federal patronage system in the state, Um, basically by ensuring that only their white Southern friends would get all these juicy plum jobs in California. Um, And the the San Francisco Customs House, which was considered sort of the, the... The highest paying job in the state at the time was so crowded with these uh, white southerners on federal sinecures that it became known as the Virginia Poor House. Um, And so, through this strict party discipline, white southerner, uh, white southern democrats basically ran the show in California through most of the antebellum period. Um, And a, a lot of the book, or at least somewhat, one of the chapters of the book really zeroes in on this guy, William Gwynn, who's this planter from Mississippi who holds about 200 people on bondage back uh, in near Nat- on his plantation near Natchez, um, but then moves to California and becomes a, a U.S. senator and, and really runs the, the show through most of the antebellum period. Um, and so what I'm trying to argue in this chapter is that antebellum California was really a free state name only.
0: So that, that raises a question as I see it, that if uh, uh, southern elites are so prominent and have so much power in California. Uh, why did um, some form of slavery never really take hold in California? Then, how were free soil uh, individuals able to to kind of to, to to stave off California becoming a slave state? And as you say in the book, you know, it's kind of a, a near thing. It's, it it almost happens in a few instances, but but how is this outcome avoided?
1: So. Anti-slavery advocates were able to pass the um, the prohibition on slavery in the in the state constitution, um, but these KG Southerners found all sorts of ways around that prohibition. Um, so one of the ways that they could basically retain control over their enslaved laborers was to um, form a contract with them. Um, you know, this hallmark of free labor became basically a tool in the hands of slaveholders in California to keep people in bondage. Um, and they said, "Well, you know, you dig enough gold out of the mine, out of the out of the earth, or you work for me for long enough, and then I'll eventually grant you your freedom." Um, they also just continued to import slaves in direct violation of, of state law. Um, and because political power rested mostly in the hands of their friends, uh, they could get away with it. So, um, San Bernardino, California basically came into being as a, as a colony for, uh, for more, for Mormon migrants into the state, a number of whom held people in bondage. Um, so there were probably somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, at least two dozen black slaves in San Bernardino in the middle of the 1850s in direct violation of state law. But, you know, so long as, as nobody interfered with their human chattel property, they can continue holding slaves um, basically for as long as they saw fit.
0: Right. It's one thing to pass a law. It's another thing to to enforce that law entirely. Exactly. And and this is something that you're talking a bit about now, but could you go into a little bit more depth about what sort of future of slavery um, white Southern elites saw in these regions in the American West? I mean, when we think about or when, uh, you know, a, a lot of people think about what the institution of slavery looks like, they imagine cotton plantations, or maybe they imagine tobacco growing operations in, in the Tidewater region of Virginia, for instance. What what did what kind of future was, was imagined here? What would slavery have possibly looked like in the mind's eye of a, a, a white southern elite in the desert southwest,
1: for instance? Mm. And this goes right back to what we were saying about California. I mean it's it's one thing to um, to outlaw slavery in a state. It's another thing to enforce it. Um, and, uh, you know, American regions can, can act in defiance of uh, their, their, their stated laws on the slavery question. Um, so a lot of slaveholders were, were pretty shrewd political operatives, um, and most of them recognized that places like New Mexico and Arizona um, weren't about to become plantation states anytime soon, at least in the way that you just sort of described them. Um, And so what slaveholders wanted from the far southwest was basically political power, um, even more so than more plantation real estate. Um, They basically wanted allies in the national struggle over slavery. And to a great extent, they got them from the far southwest. Um, and, And Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, really put his finger on it, I think, when he wrote about New Mexico's draconian slave code in 1859. I mean, New Mexico passed a slave code that looked just like the slave codes in, uh, in the Deep South. And Greeley said, uh, what I'm worried about really isn't an influx of slaves into New Mexico anytime soon. Um, it's basically political allegiance. And he said, just look at Delaware. Um, the slave population is actually pretty tiny there but slaveholders still wield disproportionate power. And and actually, that's exactly what Abe Lincoln found during the Civil War when he attempted to um, convince Delaware slaveholders to um, to, to give up their slaves in return for uh, basically a federal buyout. Um, So in a lot of ways, this pro-slavery push into the Far West uh, was about political power and it was about playing the long game.
0: Not to mention the fact, which we haven't really talked about, that all sorts of, of, of all manner of, of unfree labor already existed in parts of the desert Southwest, in places like New Mexico and Arizona. Is, is that
1: true? Yeah, exactly. And that's actually one of the, the arguments of this book. It's trying to understand, um, you know, chattel slavery of the South and all sorts of uh, forms of indigenous servitude in the in the West understand them in the same frame and think about the ways that slaveholders understood these different types of bondage. Um, and so you have two, two really important and gigantic bodies of literature that sort of remain distinct from one another. You have this giant literature on uh, African-American slavery in the South, and you have this really growing and excellent literature on Native American slavery in the Southwest. Um, and one of the things I'm doing in this book is Um, uh, trying to examine how the the country's largest and most powerful slaveholders, those in the South, understood slavery in the Southwest. And what I found is that they, they sort of saw the two institutions as mutually dependent and interlocking. So whenever Republicans tried to outlaw forms of indigenous servitude in places like New Mexico, white Southerners in Congress basically closed rank. Um, And prevented the passage of those laws because they sort of saw the abolition of of slavery or or whatever you want to call it, any sort of involuntary servitude in New Mexico as a lead domino that would eventually um, come back and weaken the institution of chattel slavery in the plantation south.
0: And speaking of of dominoes, um, when we get to the start of the 1860s, things have really reached a tipping point in the United States. And you see the the, the dawn of the secession crisis, uh, uh, you know, begin with the election of Abraham Lincoln. What role did the West play in this immediate breakup in the secession crisis of uh, the United States at the start of the 1860s?
1: So another uh, of the things that I'm arguing in this book is that we have to understand secession really um, within a continental framework. Um, It it wasn't just about the 11 slave states of the southeast that ultimately joined the Confederacy. Um, It was about, for instance, Arizona which split from the Union in the spring of 1861 um, and joined the rebellion as a Confederate territory. I mean, Arizona held three separate secessionist conventions just to convince the, con- the Confederacy that they meant business, that they wanted to join the rebellion. Um, and, uh, you know, secession is also about um, the sweeping range of uh, rebellion threats up and down California and really across New Mexico and, um, and as you know, Stephen sort of alluded to earlier, um, the West in the literature on the coming of the Civil War is often um, regarded or written about as an abstraction. Um, it's about what Easterners thought might happen uh, over there over the slavery issue, um, and these uh, in in these narratives, Easterners basically project Bleeding Kansas westward as they're thinking about what might happen in the West, um, but. What was actually happening in places like California was never abstract, obviously. Um, It was real and it was live. And from the perspective of a lot of unionists in the region, it was pretty touch and go at times.
0: And what about after the war itself begins? Did the Far West play a role in that conflict? Much much like yourself, I kind of cut my teeth as a Civil War buff when I was uh, younger, and I always found the campaign in New Mexico to be uh, a fascinating kind of side story to, to what is often thought of as the kind of main event of the war in the East. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, probably the, the best-known incident in the Far West is this Confederate invasion of, uh, of New Mexico in 1862, which um, gets decisively beaten back. But um, you know, the, the region saw a good deal more uh, activity and more rebellious activity than a lot of people might imagine during the war. Um, and so I actually don't spend too much time on, on that specific invasion. Um, one, because I think other historians have handled it better and in, in more depth. Um, and two, because I don't want to present um, the Civil War in the Far West as this sort of one-off, failed invasion. Um, it, it was a lot more than that, especially from the perspective of, uh, of Unionists in the region. Um, it, was, it was actually a series of rebel plots. Uh, that sort of simmered right up to and even in some ways beyond 1865. Um, and so one of the the main things that I'm arguing in this Civil War chapter is that um, Confederate activity in the Far West is um, sort of a natural outgrowth of this antebellum political campaign to extend Southern power across the region. And so the, the invasion of 1862, in some ways, is a bloody climax of that campaign, but it's not the, it's not the only um, marquee event uh, of the Civil War West.
0: And then after the Civil War ends, that's not the end of this story either. What about the afterlife of of slavery in the American West? What does Reconstruction look like west of the former Confederacy? How does it play out differently there than it does elsewhere in the United
1: States after the war? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I argue that, you know, obviously slavery or or African-American chattel slavery um, dies with the Confederacy, um, but that the that the South as a sort of transcontinental political network uh, outlives slavery in a lot of ways. Um, It has to sort of reemerge in a modified and and basically more modest firm form, but it does um, reemerge. And in fact, going back to what we were uh, talking about um, uh, involuntary servitude and the enslavement of native people in the Southwest, uh, that type of servitude actually survived in, in some parts of the region. Um, so you could still find peon laborers and native slaves in New Mexican households for decades after the passage of the Thirteenth Amendment. Um, and And federal officials tried to stamp it out and and they they managed to rescue some people from slavery, um, but certainly not all of them. Uh, and it just sort of highlights the the limited reach of federal reconstruction. Um, so then in California, you get this um, this swift and really decisive democratic revolt against federal Reconstruction. Um, California was actually the only free state to outright reject the 14th and the 15th Amendments. Um, And and California uh, legislators didn't pass a token ratification of those two amendments, uh, those two Reconstruction Amendments, until 1959 and 1962, respectively. Um, California was also home to uh, a small group of self-identified members of the KKK who actually targeted Chinese immigrants uh, rather than African-Americans. The Chinese population of California at the time was much larger than the black population. And so um, you white supremacist vigilantes, you know, singled the Chinese out as the, as the main threat uh, to white control over California and and white men's um, uh, labor. So That's all to say that Reconstruction um, takes on uh, a really different character in parts of the West, given its unique demographic makeup. Um, But some of the the main forces and some of the main themes are still there. Um, So you get this revolt, this political revolt against congressional Republicans. Um, You get a reign of racial terror that in in a lot of ways mirrors what's going on in the uh, post-Civil War South. Um, and you get this resurgence of avowedly white supremacist Democrats in high office in California.
0: And toward the end of the book, um, you you talk a bit about memory, and you have this wonderful, you know, frankly, kind of mind blowing map of Confederate monuments in California. And some of them have been uh, torn down or have had their 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 names changed in recent years, but a lot of them still remain. And I guess, uh, I'm trying to to kind of frame this as a question on the fly, but what is the lasting legacy of this story in the American West? Or maybe a better question is, how has the American West avoided really confronting its connections to American slavery for so long? I mean, I'll ask it like that. I'm not sure if that makes sense as
1: a question or not. That, that totally makes sense, Steve. Um, yeah, you're right, uh, the, the presence of these Confederate monuments in California is mind-blowing. Um, so until really recently, uh, I located about, uh, I, I forget the exact number, but over a dozen Confederate monuments, memorials, and place names across California, which made California the, probably the most Confederate state um, of, of any former free state in the Union. Um I, I actually had to revise that uh, epilogue a few times because every time I, I wrote a draft, a new monument would get taken down. And in fact, I was sort of inadvertently involved in the removal of the oldest Confederate monument in California. It was a it was a monument uh, that was erected in the mid-1920s in, uh, in a cemetery in Hollywood, and I wrote an article for the LA Times about it. And then, like, you know, two weeks later, or one week later, I think, um, the United you know, the right a riot in Charlottesville broke out, and the the article that I wrote sort of triggered this removal campaign, um, and the monument was hauled out of the cemetery just a couple days after that. Um, Anyway, this is all to say that uh, I think a lot of these monuments were sort of hiding in plain sight in California for a long, long time. I mean, uh, I certainly didn't know that there was basically a Confederate monument right down the street from me growing up in in LA. and again, it wasn't something that was taught in our schools. Um, but you, you don't have to look that that closely at the state to find this history and to find some relics of this history. So, getting to your question, how how did California avoid that reckoning for so long? Um, I think a number of reasons. One, there wasn't there wasn't really a, a reckoning on a national scale, right? Um, so. California would have been sort of an outlier if they took action against any Confederate memorials prior to really prior to 2016, um, but uh, California also avoided this reckoning because it was a it was a pretty comfortable place for um, for the lost cause. Uh, I would argue. I mean, this state had more uh, chapters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy even than some former slave states. Um, think there are probably still like 16 chapters by my last count. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's still a, a thriving organization. Um, and I think things are changing really, really quickly. And maybe the epilogue is already out of date. <laughs> but uh, the fact that there were this many um, uh, memorials in California to the Confederacy, I think tells you something about uh, the reach of, um, of the lost cause and of the, of the South more broadly.
0: That's really interesting, uh, and it was it was one. This will be an answering a question I'm about to ask. But that was one of my big takeaways of the book: is that you know, the, as you said, the lost cause has this kind of far and, and, and deeper reach than it's often thought of um but to frame that as a question that i i always like to ask my guests towards the end this kind of summary question um which is what's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding and obviously in any book like this there's a lot of different takeaways that you hope that a reader uh, uh, comes away understanding but if you had to pick one what
1: might that be sure i think it's um it's really an understanding of the civil war in continental terms i mean i I think I wrote this somewhere in the book, that it's it's a reframing, it's a geographic reframing in a lot of ways, um, and it's an attempt to get us to think uh, of of the Civil War era as more than just a political schism between the Northeast and the Southeast, um, but really a struggle that brought the entire country and, and actually a, a really diverse group of Americans right to the brink. Um, so as you said, we often think of places like California as landscapes of freedom and cultural pluralism right because we're reading present-day california backwards in time but you really don't have to dig all that deep into the past uh, to find that really almost the exact opposite was true in the antebellum era um, and so in a lot of ways the book is this effort to get us to rethink what we know about american regionalism um, and to see slavery in particular not as something that could ever be quarantined to one section of the country, um, that we can't just lay the sin of slavery entirely at the door of the the Southeast, Um, but that we really have to understand it as as an institution that has remarkable or had remarkable reach and power um, and an institution that really influenced American politics and racial politics in particular right down to our present moment.
0: And then I know this book has not been out for very long. It just came out earlier this year in 2021. But uh, if you are like the other historians that I know, you have probably a couple overlapping projects going on at any given time. So can you give us a preview of what you are working on next, what uh, what your next book project might be?
1: Yeah, there are, there are a few things in the works, but um, what I'm really focused on right now is Um, A book on the life and times of this woman named Biddy Mason, um, who was this remarkable former slave from Georgia, who um, basically became a real estate entrepreneur in Los Angeles. Um, So she was born uh, into slavery in Georgia in 1818, and then she was forcibly transported across the country, uh, first to Mississippi, then to Utah. Uh, and then to California where she was held in bondage until 1856. She was actually one of the enslaved people in that um, Mormon colony of San Bernardino that I mentioned earlier. Um, So you can see uh, that some of the same themes uh, are playing out in the second book. Um, But then uh, she went on to win her freedom in this hotly contested court case in L.A. in 1856 um, and to amass a fortune first as a nurse and then as a real estate developer in in Los Angeles. So she began buying properties right as the the population in L.A. really began to take off. Um, And then she channeled a lot of the money that she earned from real estate and from nursing into a whole bunch of philanthropic acts across the city. Um, so in a lot of ways, I'm arguing, we can think of this woman, Biddy Mason, as the founding matriarch of black Los Angeles. Um, and I have to say, it's, it's really nice to write something with a happy ending. Um, as you know, West of Slavery was really all about how slaveholders um, basically triumphed in places that we once thought of as free. Um, but this, uh, this Biddy Mason book sort of inverts that narrative um, and it explores the ways in which um, freedom and freed people actually won out. <laughs>
0: That sounds like a great project. And one thing that we didn't really get a chance to talk about here today that, that listeners will have to go back to the book to, to read about is, you know, Los Angeles is really this this hub of all of these different stories. And I'm glad to see you tackling the story of, of Los Angeles as it relates to Unfreedom in a future project, because that seems like something that really does need to be written about.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, well, thanks, Steve. As I, I think it's the instinct of a lot of historians to write about what was going on in their own backyard. Um, being a, an L.A. native, that was just a, a place to start. But I think it's, a, it's an interesting place to start because its character in this, in this era is so fundamentally different from what we think mm-hmm. of as the Los Angeles of the modern era. Um, so again, it's, it's attempting to sort of take history on its own terms and not read our, our understanding of the present moment backwards in time.
0: Dr. Kevin Waite is an assistant professor of history at Durham University in the United Kingdom, and he is the author of West of Slavery, the Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire, which came out just this year in 2021 with the University of North Carolina Press and the Clements Center for Southwest Studies as part of their David J. Weber series in New Borderlands History. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me today, Kevin. It's been a real
1: pleasure. Thanks, Steve.